0: or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both, underscore, MOV, number two, L-I-V. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is back with another podcast interview. As we mentioned before in past interviews, what we are is we attempt to break down knowledge silos and bring you interviews from people with A, interesting stories, and B, who are in various aspects of movement. I can say that the individual that we are interviewing today is our first collegiate coach that we've interviewed. He is also our first uh, foreign-born person. He is originally from Ireland, although now he lives in the U.S., and he has some interesting aspects, and I'm hoping he's going to share some of those with us. We are fortunate enough to be with Daniel Caulfield. He is the head men's and women's track and cross-country coach at California University of Pennsylvania, which is also my employer. I've known Daniel for probably seven or eight years in passing. It seems like every time we talk, we drop down the rabbit hole and a quick conversation turns into a little bit longer. So I'm really happy to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. Daniel, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Uh, Thanks for having me. And uh, I apologize for
1: uh, forcing you down the rabbit hole since I'm kind of known for talking incessantly. So, But thank you again
0: for having me. So one of the first things when I first started doing moving to live is I said to myself, I want to interview people that I find interesting and are going to teach me something and people who have interesting stories, because a lot of times, if you hear somebody who's very knowledgeable, at least in my case, I always wonder, well, how did they come to think that way or where are they from and why did they do that? So you have an interesting story on how you got to California originally. You are a runner. You were born in Ireland and how did you get from Ireland to the United States? I was forcibly brought here would be the best way to put it. So, uh, I, my parents
1: actually had been here many years ago, back in the sixties, went back to Ireland. I was born. Um, I've one brother. He was actually born here many years ago and he's a soccer coach. He coaches Cork city, uh, back in uh, Ireland. Um, and so, we came here when I was 13. Just we were farmers. Uh, the weather was bad uh, for several years, and um, my parents decided it was financially more beneficial to come back to the U.S. for in their case and bring me out here for the first time. So I came here in 1986. I believe it was July 7th. Won't forget it anytime soon. And um, yeah, and I've pretty much been here. Most of the time since then I've spent a few spells back living in Ireland, but for the most time I've, so I started basically high school here
0: when I was 13 and um, yeah, that's pretty much how it started. And I know a lot of times people who live in Pittsburgh were we're talking, stay in Pittsburgh because quote unquote Pittsburgh's home, but your parents sound like they're very similar to mine. They go where the jobs or the opportunities are. I'm curious if your parents were farmers, what did they do when they came to the US? So my dad, uh, he would have grown up on a farm and my mother, uh,
1: her family would have had a small little store and they've, uh, neither one would have gone, you know, would have finished high school or anything like that. I think the furthest my dad ever went was maybe second or third grade. So it was, I mean, they're in their eighties. It was about, you know, you earn a living and you do what needs to be done. So when they were teenagers, Maybe my mother was a little bit older. They actually moved to London first, and it was you do whatever job you know you can you can do. So I think they've done quite a few things. They've owned bars. They've owned a little like supermarket at one stage. Owned. Um, yeah they've actually done quite quite a few things and so when they came here my dad went into construction uh he's very handy kind of individual and my mother started like waiting tables somewhere um i don't know if you remember the uh, publisher mcgraw hill she worked on the 50th floor in the rockefeller center like as a waitress up there and it was you know all the mcgraw hill people who would eat up there so it was uh yeah just kind of whatever they could do is what they did
0: and what was it like coming from Ireland to, I think you said Bronx or the New York city area yeah. as a 13 year old, that must've been a significant culture shock. It was a culture shock of, of epic proportions in my life, but you know,
1: everything is unique to every, every individual, you know, like everything's a new experience. Um, mine just happened to be, uh, my, national school, my elementary school, we had 48 kids in it. That's over eight grades. So there were like six kids in my class, including me. And then a year later, I'm in a school, I think there was 1800 kids in my class. So it was an eight story building in the Bronx. And, uh, it was a little bit different. It was, it, there, there like everything else, there's pros and cons to it. I went from a very homogeneous, neck of the woods in Ireland where everyone looked like me, same religion, talked the same. By the way, they didn't talk this way. I'm kind of dialectic at this stage. So if you're Irish, you would hear a different accent. But um, And then I came to a place where I was very, very much in the minority, which was t- truthful. It was an awesome thing because there's no stereotypes. There's, I didn't know I didn't know how I was supposed to consider this group or that group or um, how unfortunately a lot of kids are brought up in, you know, like in a society uh, like this. But
0: um, I was, yeah, I I was very fortunate that there was just great diversity. And I know you have a long career as a runner. You said that you don't take too much credit for that because you remember testing your dad's VO2 and it was quite high when he was older. So you did have some good genetics. You had some good opportunities. But what was it that made you start or were you always active as a kid? And what was it that made you focus on running?
1: Yeah, despite neither one of my parents uh, playing a sport, we were very active as a kid. Like I say, my brother's a soccer manager nowadays. Uh, He's eight years older than me, so he always played sports and it's just kind of something you did. And out in the country, you did whatever sport was available. So where I was from, it was Irish football, hurling, soccer, running, Um, it was, yeah, it was whatever, whatever you could do, anything but go to school, to be honest. And so it was, uh, activity played a big, a big part. And again, it's pre-internet, pre-computer days. You know, it's, I remember, actually, I remember the first computer that ever played a game on was a, called a spectrum 48k, basically had 48k of Ram, which, uh, is, you know, our watches have tons more than that in this day and age. So everything was
0: outside activity. And I know growing up in the Bronx, probably distance running was not a big sport. How was it that you transitioned into being a track athlete and a distance runner? Truthfully, a lot of people stay in certain sports because
1: of success. So I I started racing when I was five years of age and, um, I obviously I had a, a talent for it and I did that and I, I won a what would we consider a national title when I was 11 in Ireland? It was the under 12, 600 meters around 143. I'm pretty good with statistics. So I uh, ran 143 back in the day on grass barefoot, no more than we would pre- uh, previously. We were talking about Zola Bud um, uh, off, uh, off the mic. And uh, so she was a fan or, or, you know, I was a huge fan of hers. I should say back in the day, because it's like, Oh, I do exactly the same as she does. Um, and yeah, came to America a few years after that. So I'd, I'd always been racing and I think it was actually in gym class one day. I wanted to be a soccer player because my brother was one and I'm more of a team person as opposed to an individual. And my, uh, my gym teacher saw me running the mile that they would make you do back in the eighties, you know, in gym class. And it was like, and I was really small. It was about maybe 4'11 as a freshman in high school. And he looked at me and thought, I'm going to get beaten up doing any other, you know, any other sport he's like you should really run and I told him I've been there done that you know that was, that was in my youth you know this is my my wise 13 year old self-talking and uh, he looked at me like it was stupid which I was and he was like you need to run and so that's how it
0: began as far as high school goes and it just went from there and I know some people in high school especially now it's like they have dreams of being professional athletes there is professional running it's a little more limited or a little more specialized than say professional basketball or professional baseball. Was there something along the lines when you were in high school saying, this is the way I'm going to make my living? Or was it something saying, you know, maybe I can get a little more schooling out of this by continuing to run. I would love
1: to claim that there was a plan, but that's not how I operate from a uh, personality point of view. I'm a P I'm definitely not a J on a Myers-Briggs test. So for me, it was, it was just the next kind of step. it was, you know, I finished high school, um, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And my dad read a result from a newspaper one day. And at the time I was trying to decide between moving back to Ireland because I was quite homesick in New York and uh, cities aren't a place that I enjoy, to be perfectly honest. Um, And it was either go back to Ireland for academic reasons or see if I could make a, a, a go out of this running thing. And he read a, a result. And I thought of a particular kid I knew, and I thought I wasn't that far behind him when I was younger. Maybe I could do this again. And the kid had just finished top two on the, in the NCAA division one championship. So I thought, eh, maybe I'll give this a
0: shot. And I know nowadays, if you want to compete in collegiate athlete athletics, you maybe hire somebody to help you get noticed or your mom or your dad puts together a highlight tape, no matter what the sport is, how did that work back in the day with you, as far as getting your name out there? Because you ended up going quite a ways away from New York State and New York City to where you ran collegiately. Uh, just pure luck, and again. Back to the the good people
1: you meet, you know, in the world. Uh, one of my high school teammates was a bit of—I would describe him as a running nerd. I hope he doesn't listen to this; he might be upset. But he was the one who would, you know, read, you know, like track and field news. He would read the Harrier, which was a big kind of publication back in the day to do with like cross country running. And he knew that Adams State University out in Colorado was well known for distance running. They had a, you know, an Olympic coach at the time. His name is Dr. Joe V. Hill. And he went out there first, another teammate followed. And by the time I was ready to go somewhere, somebody said, I'm actually going to transfer out there. Would you like to go? And I thought, I've got nothing better to do sitting here on my couch in New York. I'll go with you. So I would love to say it was planned out that, you know, I had this great idea, you know, of where I was going to go in life. And it was nothing like that. It was
0: somebody called and said, you want to go? And I said, sure. Sure. And for people who don't know, Adams State is a longtime Division II, am I correct? Correct. Running powerhouse, especially distance running. You mentioned their longtime coach who I believe is retired but still living.
1: Uh, So he is, yeah. He actually, he coached Dina Castor to uh, her Olympic bronze medal and uh, U.S. record in the marathon. He currently coaches Brenda Martinez, uh, who's another world championship medalist. And so he's very much live and active
0: uh in his late 80s and um you know, he's just a he's a force of nature. And Adams State if I remember with my geography is at elevation and literally way out in the middle of nowhere am I correct? Very correct. It's uh,
1: 7544 feet above uh, sea level. Uh it's actually considered to be in a subarctic desert. Uh so it's very dry but it's at high altitude and it's in southern Colorado. Um, so it's very flat also, which a lot of people are not aware of. So it's surrounded by mountains, but for about 80 miles by 120 miles, it's flat in
0: this valley called the San Luis Valley. So you go there from New York city. What was the effect on your running when you first got there with elevation? If you can remember back then for people who are listening, 7,500 feet is quite high and will affect you. Yeah. It's about a mile, (laughs) mile and a half
1: up. It is, uh, if you're actually fish and you go up there. You will feel like somebody is sitting on your chest uh, as you're trying to do something. Again, back to my lack of planning. I arrived there very unfit, so everything just hurt. But I expected it to, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a shock when I went out to run for two miles. And after two miles, I was like, I need to stop right now and take a break before I run the next two miles. So it it uh, I did myself a favor by being ill prepared. I just knew it was
0: going to be hard, and it was. Was there any ever thought or any talk from the coach? It's like, look, you're just not division two material based on your performance. Oh yeah. Day one, actually
1: minute one, I walked in, I said, hi, my name's Daniel. I would like to be on the team. And he asked me if I ran my thousand miles that summer. And I thought he was kidding. And clearly the look I gave him was enough for him to tell me, get out. And I thought, this is not good. I'm 2000 miles away from anyone. I know 5000 miles away from, from Ireland. I've got to somehow make this work.
0: So this was, if from what you're implying, this was not a scholarship offer. You went out there to run. <laughs> no. It was, uh, I, I went out there just to, to take a chance. Did it work out?
1: I. Uh, it's all relative. <laughs> it, uh, I, I suppose at the end of that year, um, I had, I officially had a PR of 204 for the 800, uh, which should have been a lot better. It wasn't, but, uh, officially my PR was 204 going there and I ran 148, 72 by the end of that first year. And I won the NEA national, NEIA national championship, which, uh, was at the time one of the biggest conferences or one of the biggest associations in the country. It would have been bigger than Division two, division three, that sort of thing. Um, uh, like we would had people who would have made Olympic finals that were competing in the NAA back in those days. So it was it, it, it was definitely a, a big jump up for me.
0: Did you ever joke with your coach after that and say, you know, yeah, I, I do fit in, I am good enough, or you kind of just kept your mouth shut and your head down? I try
1: to keep my mouth shut with him because I was if I did something well, you could be sure I did ten other things poorly.
0: So there was no need to to bring that sort of misery on myself. So you PR by basically 15, 16 seconds after one year of training. Do you think that was due to consistent training? Do you think that was due to elevation and good coaching or just a whole combination of factors? It it was a whole combination.
1: There was uh, probably one of the biggest things that I wouldn't have talked about years ago. I mean, there was desperation. I was a very depressed individual in New York. I actually had dropped out of high school about two months before graduation. And so, even though I was 18 when I first went to college, I should have been there when I was 16. I'd got left back once in Ireland because I didn't speak Irish well enough, the actual language, which I use that all the time now, as you can tell. And then uh, in college, I was actually recruited to go to a a local division one school in New York and that fell apart and I felt I'd been uh, misled and lied to about it. So even as I recruit here now, I'm very blunt and honest in regards to what we will do and what we won't do, because that kind of broke my heart. To be honest, it was, that was my way of getting out of the city when I was a kid. And, um, And that coach, uh, who still actually coaches, I won't say who it is, but, um, he, he, he said enough that my dad, who is a man of very few words, unlike me, uh, he said, you can go there, but that man's not to be trusted. So I actually, I, I did not go to summer school. I went to, uh, I finished up high school September to January. I went to this other school just for the spring semester. And then I actually transferred out to Adams. Uh, so it was, um, uh, but again, nobody actually knew it in all my years at Adams because I was, I was still young for being out there. Cause I started actual school when I was three years old. So I was in some ways I was fortunate and I have, I had some good genetics and in other ways there's the flip side of it where socially, you know, you're not as mature in certain ways. And, um, even like winning when I won that year as a freshman, I was not psychologically prepared to be as good as I was physically, if that makes sense at that point, it caused more problems in the future.
0: Did you continue with the running through college and did you win additional national championships?
1: No, no, would be the accurate answer. Even though I'm credited with winning three other national titles, they were all related to team titles. So we won two cross country national titles and I was on a relay that won a national title. Um, Probably the closest I came, I was ranked number one in the 800 and the 1500 one indoor season, or uh, it might've been the 15, might've been the mile and the 800 one indoor season. And we were so, I was so far ahead in those particular areas. And we had a coach that I did not get along with. He was in between my first coach, Coach feehill and my uh, uh, second coach and the guy who coached me post collegiately, who's actually still the coach there, Damon Martin. We had a gentleman who I did not get along with very well. And he wanted us to drive to the national meet, which was 24 hours away. And I thought, I know I'm going to win. I don't need to go. Which now looking back, is not necessarily the best move. But again, it's only a race. So, uh, but yeah, no, I never actually won after that. And that's, and that's part of the problem too. It's not realizing how you got there. So I did work out extremely hard that year and I'm not saying this like to brag I was I was desperate enough to try and keep up so in my attempt to get out of being in just inside the top 30 on the team you just keep working keep working keep working we had a lot of distance runners and there was tremendous inspiration there not only from the beauty of the area but from the people you're around we had people who were running on the U.S. national team you know like people who did it for a living and it was just it it was motivating it was awesome and uh, but you forget that sometimes you get to a particular spot and you think oh I did this myself and it's like no you didn't you know you had a whole bunch of people who were helping you get here
0: i think one of the books i periodically go back and read is once a runner by john parker and i think that kind of reminds you that even though you think of distance running as being a solo sport it really isn't a solo sport not at all
1: but another th- a shameful thing i shouldn't be adding all this on uh for the first time putting it out there but that was the first actual book i read outside of a textbook in my life and it was for the sake of keeping up on, like, uh, keeping conversation going in a run because we had much smarter guys than me on the team and you couldn't engage in a conversation. And since I like to talk, I would have to go on 10 miles and not be able to open my mouth. So I was like, I need to go read this book that they keep talking about. And, uh, and again, those simple little things get more out of you physically than you can possibly imagine till way after the fact.
0: I'm curious, the 148 as a freshman, did you run faster than that in your remaining years of eligibility? I did, I think I finished with
1: uh, 147.90, would be my collegiate PR Uh, outdoors, I think around 148.94 indoors.
0: And for people who are listening to this, who may not be familiar with track and field is, you have to run quite fast to be successful. But sometimes you can run very fast and not win because other people run faster. I know that's <laughs> that sounds weird, but it's like just because a 148 wins one year doesn't mean that same time you could run just as fast the next year and not even be in the top 10 oh, give, sure. it, given the, the competition that's there. So
1: after that, um, that fantastic season I had where I decided I was too good to go to the national meet, <laughs> Uh, the next year, a school called Abilene Christian in Texas, uh, who are now a Division I school, they had two young gentlemen on the team. One was from Kenya and one was from Zimbabwe. The Kenyan ran 143.54, I think was his PR. And the guy from Zimbabwe was like a four
0: five guy. I did not beat those guys. And I know at some point in time, everybody always has an altered perception of reality of how good they are. I used to think that I was a really good basketball player as a six-one white center. And then I went and I volunteered as an athletic training student at the Empire State Games and got to see people like Christian Leitner play when he was a high school player. And at a relatively young age realized, yeah, I'm not that good a basketball player. Uh, at what point was there the realization? You mentioned you ran post-collegiately. So at what point did you realize in college, it's like, okay, I can continue to run after college and maybe have a chance to make a national team or make an Olympic team and continue this beyond the NCAAs or NAIA's.
1: So I should have prefaced everything by saying I'm a lot more lucky than I am smart or talented. And again, just by mere virtue of the people I trained with that that was their goals. I just kind of jumped on that bandwagon. So for everyone that I saw make a, a world university games or make a world championships, And if you're able to go and run with them, it was kind of like, well, maybe I could do this as well. But it was never a, for all of the smack talking I might have done, which came from kind of my New York days, uh, there wasn't really a tremendous amount of confidence. It was just, it was the next logical step based on what my friends were doing, if that makes sense. And how did that work
0: out post-collegiately?
1: It was a great adventure would be the best way I could describe it. Uh, so I graduated in 1995, 96 was an Olympic year. So I made an attempt at making the Irish national team. Uh, cause again, back to just sheer luck, I ran a race at the end of 95. So again, back to my great academic prowess, I was cramming in credits at the end to make sure I graduated in four years from Adam state, not telling anyone I'd already put in a semester somewhere else. And so I didn't do a lot of training that particular year and went to, uh, went back to a race in Ireland and was very fortunate and beat the Olympic, the reigning Olympic silver medalist. And he was, uh, and he had, was third at the world championships, uh, two years prior. And it was not expected by me, by him, by anyone in the crowd. And it kind of got me on a particular path that I suddenly got picked up to go to other races throughout Europe. And, but the truth is I didn't know how I did it. Like that would be the best, that would be the honest answer. So it was the first time I broke 148 and it was kind of a, um, it it was a definitely a changing point in my life in many respects, but not, not psychologically would be the best way to describe it. So it, it allowed me other opportunities, but I wasn't prepared to, to capitalize on them. So I did a lot of traveling. I went to, you know, uh, a lot of different races, went on a training camp down in South Africa, you know, like with Olympic champions, Olympic record or like Olympic yeah, record holders. And when the time came, the pressure and stress of trying to make it happen uh like was holding me back. It just was not something I was prepared for. And so then uh, a year later, uh, I went back and I started grad school got an injury and thought running, I'm done with this, you know, it's not working out for me. And I actually got a job back in Ireland. And that's when I, that was the last time I lived in Ireland for more than a few months at a time. And I worked, uh, in a physiology lab back there. And that's like I say, where I tested my dad and VO two max and a whole bunch of other people. And, um, and that was a phenomenal experience in itself, but um, a year and a half after that, I got the bug too. I had to finish my graduate degree cause I never finished it. So I went back to finish that and in the process started running again and kind of took off one more time. I'd love to say it was planned out. It was not just fell into it.
0: Looking back at it now, 20 plus years later, is there anything you think you could have done to prepare yourself better psychologically? Because that is to be able to suddenly be on a stage where you could potentially be an Olympian is I think more pressure than most people Are aware that it takes, especially because it's not a team sport. It's an individual you're running. Basically, you have only yourself to blame or credit, even though other people are helping you on the race. It's it's you.
1: Yeah, it's so I never like when people talk about not having regrets. I I, I consider that to be nonsense. I was like, if I could have made an Olympic team. So I've I've run at two world championships. I've never made the Olympics. The closest I came was 0.35 away and in, in an 800. And it did a tremendous amount for me not making it, but to say that I wouldn't have wanted to would be nonsense. Like I would, if I could go back, I would try and do it and just hopefully still learn at the rate I, I've learned since, since my mistakes. But it, I, I don't know if I could have with the setup I had, if that makes sense. Like I just was too immature, didn't have enough confidence. It's part of the reason I coach today because I realize how many people have insecurities. And as we grow older, we try and, you know, we, we try and protect ourselves and put ourselves in an environment where we don't feel insecure, but you take us outside of that and we'll be very insecure very quickly, you know, and, and and this goes for, you know, I, I, as I told you, I talk incessantly, I'll talk to anyone anywhere. And the same theme comes up. Like there's always a pressure point that will, will make you feel like you're a child again. And for me, a lot of those situations made me feel, in a good way, like a child, like it's exciting. There's an adrenaline rush, you know, it's like kind of going on a roller coaster, driving really fast kind of thing when you line up and you know, the cameras on you, that sort of stuff. But there's also the other side that is very much calls into question your insecurities and who you feel you are, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know if I could have engineered it with, you know, without being different myself, if that makes sense. Uh, if somebody else had stepped in, you know, and did something for me, it probably would have probably would have had an effect, but it could have put, thrown something else out of whack as well.
0: And I imagine this was long before sports psychologists became a big opportunity to work with.
1: They were definitely there. I, I do remember my dad uh, probably when I was in my mid-20s saying, you need to see a sports psychologist, and I was very offended. And I thought, no, I don't. I can take care of this myself. And I should have listened to him.
0: I'm detecting a theme there. The 13-year-old who'd already done the running, the college student who was... I'm good enough. I don't need to go to the national champions and also smart enough or insightful enough to kind of joke about that and and look back at it and say, yeah, that was kind of funny.
1: Um, yeah, I would, I I would say just completely misplaced arrogance and multiple times throughout my life. And, uh, it, it is one of the, curses of you know somebody once said you know your blessing is your curse i've been very fortunate like to have a lot of things go you know to go my way or you know like genetic talent like again i played no role in that you know it's like say, this came from my family uh and it, it can it can lead you astray sometimes if you think it's more than it is um that was one of the great things having uh, zola butter zola petersy here uh, recently it's, you need to remain humble. And sometimes when I didn't, it you know, it rightfully
0: kicked me in the butt. I'm curious. I know I've known a fair number of elite level swimmers who've competed at the Olympics and the world championships. Some of them are fortunate enough to medal, but even if they don't medal to make it at that level means you're at a high level. So you've obviously competed at a high level. If you made two world championship teams, do you still run to any extent now?
1: Not really. Uh, I stay active. I... If you were to ask the kids I coach, they'll see me running every weekend back and forth across the the infield, cheering them on. Um, definitely out across cross country meets, I'll try and cover as much ground as I can. But I'm more interested in play, meaning like just staying active enough to be able to play with my chi- play with my child. Just in, just enjoy being physically fit. I guess would be the best way to describe it.
0: And I know one of the questions I often ask the people that I interview for moving to live and also my other podcast, FitLab PGH, is what does fitness mean to you? And I'm probably going to steal your definition because when you filled out the interview form, you said it's the ability to be able to play like a child until you're very, very old. And I think that kind of is along the lines of what I think. It's like I want to be able to do whatever I am able to do physically, literally until hopefully at some point many, many years from now, I drop dead while doing that.
1: Yeah, there's... um and I was thinking after I wrote it, and you said you enjoyed it, I was like, where did I come up with that from? Because sometimes I just spew out stuff, and I'm even, I'm like, who did I steal this from? Because that's usually what coaching is—it's stealing, you know, something from somebody else, and and uh, and naming it your your own. But there were two things that I th- I thought of that meant an awful lot to me. One was my my dad again, who not a sports person, never played sports. And there was a fundraiser for a local community center that they were um uh, back when i was a kid and the fundraiser was a bike ride a bike race it was like a 20 mile something to me at the time 20 miles seemed like an awfully long way to go um drugs or no drugs uh but (laughs) on this uh bike ride he finished second he was in his 50s i'd never seen him on a bike before and he's not the small he was not the lightest of guys he would have been maybe 215 pounds five foot seven he's a strong guy and here he finished his second. He had to borrow the bike from somebody because we didn't even have a bicycle. Uh, like I had a kid's bike, but he didn't have one. And I thought, wow, oh, that's amazing. You know, I thought it was really cool. Years later, when I am like kind of a, a full time athlete, we'll say. I hate using the word professional because I I rarely got paid that much. Um, I got paid enough to survive, but you know, not not a whole pile. And I'm at a particular training session. And there was a gentleman who was living in Ireland at the time. He may still be there. His name is Zbigniew Oriwell He was a Polish man. He was a sub four-minute miler back in the late 50s. So he was one of the first guys to break four minutes for the mile. He's in his late 60s at this point, And he's trying to help demonstrate or he's trying to help a kid hurdle uh barriers for the steeplechase. They're immovable. You don't want to hit them. They're three feet high, you know, 36 inches. And here he goes and he decides, I'm just going to demonstrate it for you. And in his late sixties, he shows this young kid how to hurdle these barriers. And I thought that is about the coolest thing out. And so those sort of things I find to be much more motivating than,
0: um, just talking about what you did in your youth, to be perfectly honest. We're talking with Daniel Caulfield. He is the head men's and women's track and field and cross country coach at California University of Pennsylvania. We found out his story on how he ran in high school, college, post collegiately, and then finished up his degree after spending a little time in a physiology lab. We're going to come back in two years, or excuse me, two weeks—not two years—that would be too long—and we're going to find out how one goes from finishing up the degree to ending up as a Division II NCAA cross country and track and field coach because. I think it's an interesting story. Daniel, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live for part one of the interview, and I'm looking forward to talking to you for part two. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both, underscore, mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.